This is an ABC podcast. Kurigang Island is the largest island in Newcastle Harbour. Before industries arrived and filled the gaps with tonnes of dirt, it was actually several islands dominated by mangroves, mosquitoes and fruit trees. And in the late 90s, it was in the midst of a massive transformation. It handles more than $1 billion in coal exports a year, but under plans just approved, its output will almost double. The five to ten year expansion will see Kurigang become the world's largest coal loading terminal. But in 1997, if you peered through the smog and looked between the three kilometre wide coal piles, you'd find something out of place. Yesterday, in the shadow of greenhouse gas emissions from BHP's fading steelworks in Newcastle, the control button was pushed to start up the latest generator in the world's fastest growing energy industry, wind power. The Kurigang Island wind turbine, installed by electricity company Energy Australia, was the country's largest. It's a measure of the revolution occurring within the world's energy market that a system thought of until recently as fanciful is now a $2 billion global enterprise. The turbine was 73 metres high and it could be seen from all over town. It generated enough electricity to supply 150 homes. The company said that by the year 2000, they planned to have up to 10 wind farms running throughout the Newcastle region. Years later, I had the chance to climb up inside the wind turbine at Kurigang for an ABC report on Earth Day. Looking across the region from the top of the turbine, there was a conspicuous absence of any other wind farms. What I could see was mountains of coal being loaded onto ships. The wind turbine on Kurigang was still alone. It wasn't happy either. Lubricant had begun to drip down inside the tower holding it up. In 2014, it was removed. Thinking about wind turbines, the one at Kurigang is coming down today after 17 years of operation. The 73-metre-high turbine was Australia's first large-scale single wind turbine. But we don't want it anymore. The spot where it had been standing for 17 years was needed to build a new ship-turning bay to increase the speed at which coal could be exported. The port had doubled its output in those 17 years, but apparently needed to grow more. It was a clear message. Newcastle could play around with renewable energy if it wanted, but not if it got in the way of the main thing Newcastle had always done. Export black rocks. I'm Matt Bennett, and this is Australia If You're Listening, a podcast about why Australia's found it so hard to tackle climate change and what that means for the future. Newcastle was built on coal, literally. The whole city is built on top of coal mines. And figuratively, Australia is too. But soon, the two-century-old Australian coal mining industry will end. This is the story of how Newcastle and Australia relied on coal to create prosperity, and what it will mean for both once it's gone. Australia's relationship with coal goes back tens of thousands of years. The story basically said there was a great hole and 
fire erupted from this hole and a great darkness descended over the land. This is Professor John Maynard. I'm a Warramai man from the Port Stephens region of New South Wales. He's also an expert in Indigenous history at the University of Newcastle. And he's telling me a dreaming story from the Awabakal people who lived in what we now call Newcastle before European settlement. In the story, there's a hole in the ground filled with darkness. And what this story relates is that there was some sort of eruption and the whole, um, the sun disappeared, I mean the light disappeared, the whole sky went into darkness and the, the, the darkness spread across the land and there was incredible fear amongst the Aboriginal population. The elders in the community advised the, uh, the Aboriginal population that they had to cover up the darkness that had spread from this hole and they, you know, using sand and rocks and and um, uh, plant stuff, over a long period of time they buried this darkness under the land. And the darkness, of course, is the coal. The coal. Coal dominated the landscape. It was everywhere. Poking out of cliff faces, lying on the ground, occasionally catching on fire and belching black smoke everywhere. What did they fear would happen if it wasn't covered, though? the fires would come back and the darkness would descend upon the country again. So, and we'd be covered in a darkness. Coal was important to the Iwabakal people. The Iwabakal are noted as being the only Aboriginal group who incorporated dreaming stories of coal. It wasn't only the bringer of doom. Coal had practical uses as well. They cooked with it. They used it for warmth. In the 1790s, it would completely transform their country, thanks to a husband and wife on the run from the law. Escaping convicts, the Bryants, were going north in a a small boat trying to get out of Sydney. In 1791, Lieutenant John Shortland was dispatched from Sydney in pursuit of William and Mary Bryant, who had stolen the governor's boat and were escaping up the coast. They were the first ones to see coal. And coal seems in Newcastle on the cliffs, you can actually see the black line. So they knew what it was. This is Julie Baird, director of the Newcastle Museum. She says the Bryants could see the characteristic black layers, coal seams, in the cliff faces along the coast. So he was after them and then happened to find this beautiful harbour, could see the coal seams, writes reports back, and then people come up to see what's going on. So it was probably within three or four years that people started to come up. Settlers from Sydney moved up to Newcastle to mine. So the colonisation of Awabakal land started with coal as well. But when it came to mining that coal, nobody in the settlement knew what they were doing. Only one man on the First Fleet had any experience at all of coal mining. They had one miner, one convict miner. So he was the one that uh, initially sunk those shafts to see how much coal was down there, and there's a lot. They were looking for it for export. So one of the earliest exports out of Australia was coal to Bengal, but also they wanted to trade coal for cattle because they needed beef and live meat. In the early years, they didn't produce a lot of coal. In 1805, they exported 84 tonnes of it. Nowadays, the port handles that much coal every 35 seconds. The thing about coal mining is it's really hard. So convict coal mining wasn't incredibly efficient, A, because 
people don't know what they're doing. So you're sending people down a coal mine who've never been coal miners before, except for one guy, and you had lots of sand and debris coming in the mine. Lamps would explode. People would die of gas. You'd send, you'd send down rescuers, and then they'd die over and over again. Coal could be dangerous. It is, after all, the darkness which the Awabakal people feared. The hole in the story, the one the darkness erupted from, it's in a part of Newcastle now called Redhead. I grew up just up the road from there, in a suburb called Dudley. I'm standing there right now, on the side of the oval I played school sports in. Growing up, I had no idea that the oval was anything other than a normal sporting oval. But 200 metres down is a coal seam. In 1898, 15 men and 3 horses were killed in the coal mine built to access that seam after a spark set fire to methane which had seeped out of the coal and filled the tunnels. The force of the explosion shook the earth above and could be heard eight kilometres away. It was the worst mining disaster in Newcastle's history. Forty years later, they closed the mine and turned it into this field I played footy on. More than 1,800 people have died in the region's coal mines since mining began here. So there's all sorts of land in Newcastle that is left with not a lot on top that no one knows is a graveyard. Getting gas out of mines was an enormous challenge. Getting water out was even harder. Making mining safer and more efficient was a big priority. Mining is so specialised and so skilled, you can't dispose of miners. The need to get water out of mines led to the creation of the steam engine. The need to move coal from mines to cities and factories created the steam train and the steam ship. Coal both created and powered the Industrial Revolution. And then... So you've got coal, so therefore you've got steam, therefore you've got electricity. And people here started, the miners started running little wires to their houses, didn't they? We do have a history of pirating things in Newcastle (laughs) as well. As electricity spread across the continent, demand for coal increased. By 1900, Newcastle was producing 6 million tonnes of coal a year, more than half of all the coal produced in the Southern Hemisphere. Apart from the tiny bit used to light and heat Novocastrian homes, it was all being loaded onto ships and sent away. Some to Melbourne, Adelaide, South America, the Philippines and New Zealand, but most of it was going to Sydney. There are five vessels on the run these days, five 60 milers, bringing coal from Newcastle to meet the demands of Sydney's industries. In 1915, though, it was put to use in Newcastle itself. Australia had used Newcastle's coal to industrialise, and now it was time to scale up. Newcastle was Australia's first steelworks and opened its furnaces for business in 1915. In those days, we as a nation were terribly proud of the event. The steelworks, built on the bank of the harbour, dominated the city. The Newcastle Steelworks of the Broken Hill Proprietary Company Limited. At this plant alone, BHP employ 11,500 people who produce more than 2 million tonnes of steel each year. Coal is the major employer in Newcastle until the BHP becomes a major employer. The population exploded. Mining has never employed many people, but steelmaking did. 
So all of a sudden Newcastle's population changes. Anybody could turn up in Newcastle, put their hand up and walk through that gate and you got a job. It didn't matter who you were, what your background was, what your colour was, um, you got a job. John Maynard spoke to a local elder who recruited men for the BHP. Uncle Bill was really good. I mean, BHP told him they needed 200 men by Monday morning and he drove to Kempsey and got all the black fellas up there and they all come down in trucks and whatever way they could get here and Monday morning there were 200 black fellas turned up to start work. Not only did the BHP happily employ black men, but the local pubs would happily serve them, setting them apart from most of New South Wales at the time. What had been created was a chain. Coal comes out of Australian coalfields, it's used to melt steel at an Australian steelworks, which then goes off to be used in the construction of Australian buildings and in Australian manufacturing, creating jobs all the way along the chain. At its peak, the BHP employed one in six Novocastrians. It was the centre of the largest company in Australia, the most energy-intensive factory in Australia, and... The heavyweight contender for the Polluter of the Year award. Yeah, it was renowned for being dirty. Newcastle was a place you wound up the windows before you drove into, and it was a place you didn't hang your laundry out at certain times of the day. By the middle of the 20th century, coal was generating incredibly cheap electricity in power stations dotted across the country. There were few parts of our economy that weren't made viable by the coal we were digging up and turning into power. Many of the industries that grew here in Australia were the ones that used that edge to their advantage. Food processing, steel making, chemical manufacturing, cement making and aluminium, which uses more energy than them all. The cheap energy coal provided was a key building block of the nation. Manufacturing in Australia appeared strong, but by the middle of the 20th century, there were serious concerns that it wouldn't last. As coal ran out in Newcastle itself, the mining operations spread further and further up the Hunter River towards a town called Musselbrook. In the 1920s, a boy named Donald Horne was growing up in that town. I had a happy childhood uh, and also had a sense of belonging. Uh, I belonged to Musselbrook, a town that I loved and found, uh, even as a child, uh, a feeling of texture and difference in it. Donald Horne grew up to become one of Australia's most famous social commentators. In 1966, he wrote a book called The Lucky Country. This is where that phrase comes from in relation to Australia, the title of Horne's book. These days, you're more likely to hear it used unironically to talk about how lucky we are, but Horne didn't mean it as a compliment. Uh, when I was talking about the lucky country, uh, I was talking about what I considered to be the second-rate nature of what you might describe as most top people in Australia, uh, specifically in the sentence that Australia is a lucky country run by second-rate people who share its luck. In the book, he compares Australia to other countries and concludes we lucked into significant wealth. We became a, a prosperous industrial nation without having to go through the educational changes uh, and the changes in thinking patterns and the innovatory changes, having to think up things for ourselves. We got most of it. It came down to us from above. He said, thanks to our coal and other minerals and our vast tracts of farming land, we became rich without ever having to think. And he thought that as technology started to improve, we would become little more than a quarry and a farm. We have a very great risk that in the 1980s we will become a kind of Latin American 
the much-hated uh, you know, banana republic. A banana republic is a term for Central American countries which got all their national income from exporting fruit to America. They tended to be pretty um, politically unstable. It will be a country whose economic activity is very largely dictated by several large foreign companies who see it as a quarry, an oil field and so forth. So why was he worried about this? What made Australia vulnerable to becoming a quarry? The manufacturing industry that was developed in Australia was for the domestic market. It wasn't focused on exports. This is Judy Brett. She's a professor of politics at La Trobe University and she wrote about this period of Australian history in her quarterly essay, The Coal Curse. She says the key failure was that Australia waited too long to modernise our manufacturing industry. For most of the 20th century, it wasn't designed to interact much with the world market. That's because Australia had put big tariffs, taxes, on anything brought into the country. This made foreign stuff so expensive you would choose to buy Australian-made instead. We'd make everything here. We'd make cars, we'd make washing machines, we'd make fridges, and there'd be a lot of consumer choice. The world's car companies built factories here to get around the tariffs, building Fords, Holdens and Toyotas in Australia for Australians. So we have a number of car manufacturers all competing for the same small domestic market. The contrast is with a country like Sweden, which made a decision to specialise, to also wanting to develop a sophisticated manufacturing industry, but decided to specialise and make it export-oriented with a few brands. I know people get grumpy about comparing things to Scandinavian countries, but in the middle of the 20th century, Sweden had a similar population size to ours, but took a different route. They devoted their energy and resources to developing a car brand that not just Swedes would want, but other people too. To give you the strongest, safest, most comfortable car going, the makers of Volvo in Gothenburg, Sweden, ship cars 13,000 miles to places like Ayers Rock for torture tests. Volvo offer you a car that's probably seen more of Australia than you have. Australian manufacturers weren't selling things to people overseas, though. Their market was 7 million Australians. That meant factories stayed pretty small by global standards, and they also fell behind. There's a, a little telling anecdote where an Italian, you know, we produce fine wool, and so an Italian fabric maker and who made fine wool suits thought well why doesn't that wool get turned into fine suiting material in Australia and he came out here and he went on a bit of a a tour of some factories and he said these factories are using machines we haven't used in Italy for decades we were really behind the game in terms of technological competitiveness. This couldn't last forever. At some point, the tariffs protecting Australian manufacturers from international competition would have to come down. The modern world demanded it. It would be very damaging to our standard of living for us to make everything ourselves. This is Ross Garno, who in the 1980s became a government economic advisor just as the tariffs were coming down. In the days when high protection caused Australia to make its own shoes and shirts, baby shoes... Uh, in Australia cost several times as much uh, in real terms as they do today. If we tried to make our own computers, they would be prohibitively expensive. If we tried to make our own aircraft, it would become prohibitively expensive to fly from Melbourne to Perth. 
But trading with the rest of the world can be a challenge. And if you're going to import some things, you need to be able to export other things. We've got this problem with our external accounts. This is not just a problem for me, it's a problem for the nation. This is Federal Treasurer Paul Keating. It's 1986. He's standing in a restaurant kitchen talking on their landline phone to radio station 2UE. We are importing about 12 billion more than we're exporting on an annual basis. The country was in the process of removing the tariffs on foreign products and Australians were loving it, importing enormous amounts of stuff from overseas. Our manufacturers, though, were struggling. They were now forced to compete with the global market. Keating was worried. If this government can't get the adjustment, get manufacturing going again, then Australia's basically done for. We'll just end up being a third-rate economy. You know, a banana republic. Well, it's pretty serious, isn't it? It is the most serious problem we face. The lucky country appeared to be running out of luck. And if we don't make it this time, we never will make it. Ross Garneau says that for a while, the reforms brought in by Keating worked well, as more innovative Australian manufacturers started to remake themselves as exporters. The 20 years after 1983, our exports of manufactured goods grew at a compound rate of, in volume, not in price, in volume, uh, more than 10% per annum. But Australia wasn't alone in its changing economy. As all this was happening, an extraordinary change was underway in China. Their sudden economic expansion caused an incredible need for Australian coal and iron ore. Enormous amounts of money began to flow into Australia. Building a modern manufacturing industry didn't seem to matter as much anymore. The world wants to buy lots of things from us, but it wants to buy basically coal and iron ore and then later LNG. So in a way the problem goes and people just stop paying attention to it. (laughs) It just sort of falls off the table, in a way. Attempts to continue to reform and build a new export-oriented manufacturing sector fell by the wayside. The alternative was just too easy. After becoming reliant on coal for cheap energy, we had become reliant on it for our export trade as well. We became the quarry Donald Horn warned of, digging up the darkness and sending it overseas. This is especially obvious in Newcastle. The BHP Steelworks closed in 1997. Using the coal to create Australian steel for Australian manufacturing wasn't profitable anymore. Turning it into electricity is also coming to an end. Two of the four Hunter Valley coal-fired power stations will close in the next three years. The other two will be gone by the early 2030s. All that will be left is export. In 2016, Newcastle exported 165 million tonnes of coal. That was more than was dug up in the entire first century of mining there. Newcastle still holds its title as the world's biggest coal exporting port. Despite the size of this operation, though, there aren't all that many miners. Basically, the problem with mining and farming is it doesn't employ enough people. As technology advances, they produce fewer and fewer jobs. These days, coal mining, our second largest export, employs fewer people than dental surgeries do. But for the parts of the country which mine coal, it's still a big employer. And it just so happens that those parts of the country are home to several marginal federal seats. You can't just say we're stopping coal and there goes all our export dollars and thousands of jobs. 
which means Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese have been visiting a lot. The Hunter has gone through its fair share of changes over my lifetime. And what's really exciting is how the Hunter keeps adapting, keeps evolving. There is so much that the Hunter can teach us about adaptation and change and reconstruction and innovation. But the big question when it comes to adaptation, evolution and change is what's going to happen to the people who currently work in the mines? So the mining industry directly employs around 12,000 people in the Hunter region. And across the region, that's not a big number by itself. This is Steve Galilee. I'm the Chief Executive of the New South Wales Minerals Council. We represent the mining companies across New South Wales. Even the Minerals Council is seeing evidence of evolution and change. Our coal producers represent around uh, two-thirds of our membership. Uh, A a decade ago, they were about 80%. So our industry is evolving and changing. They're getting into gold and copper and other stuff like that. In the marginal electorate of Hunter, though, coal mining is still the main game. Anywhere from between one in five or, or one in four jobs directly in those communities would be directly related to to the the coal mines in the region. So those are the coal miners, but there's also the businesses which provide stuff to those mines. And there are around 4,000 businesses across the Hunter region that are part of that mining supply chain, providing everything from catering and stationery to uh, heavy equipment and machinery and that sort of engineering uh, support. But that is shrinking. Uh, Ten years ago, the contribution of the sector to the hunter economy was at around 35%. At one stage, it was down to around 18%. And it will eventually shrink to nothing. The industry accepts that one day, and it's debatable how many decades away that day will be, the final coal train will roll down the valley and be loaded onto the final ship. Like the closure of the BHP in 1997, a hunter industry that employs a significant number of people will close. I mean, I've been involved in the, in the hunter economy for since the closure of the BHP still works. But the Hunter economy was resilient, it was strong, and it was able to diversify. And, and we're going to see that again. So there's no need for any sort of um, panic or rush on this stuff. Steve Galilee says the less interest from the government, the better. Government has a role to play from time to time in setting some direction and providing some leadership. But the best, most sustainable economic transition that can happen in the Hunter and indeed anywhere else is one that happens organically. Just how big a role the government should play has been a big problem for Australia's major political parties. Both of them have had internal battles over whether to back a long future for coal. In 2019, the Labor Party almost lost the seat of Hunter over the issue. A lot of them weren't voting Labor because Labor want to close the mines. Mate, it was pretty easy. You vote for Labor, you're going to lose their jobs. Since then, both Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese have talked about the need for a transition in coal regions, while still keeping the door open to exporting coal for a long, long time. Absolutely critical to Australia's future. And we'll keep on mining. Of course we'll keep on mining. Well, we have net zero by 2050. Are you seriously saying we could still be mining and selling thermal coal to the world? Yes, we could. Inside both parties, though, are MPs and senators calling for serious action to be taken to create new industries in coal regions. Steve Galilee says that's premature. And in the end, those that are calling for rush and those that are claiming panic 
uh, are to a large extent, in my experience, motivated by a desire to simply want to shut the industry down prematurely. Organic transition without government intervention would, of course, be great. But is it likely to deliver the best outcome for mining regions? To get an idea of that, you don't need a crystal ball. You just need to head south. Can I get you to introduce yourself the way we should introduce you on the radio? Left-handed marathon runner, mad swan supporter, father of four, human friend of Marlow. Uh, Darren Chester, Federal Member for Gippsland. Darren Chester is the Nationals MP representing the Latrobe Valley, home of Victoria's coal-fired power stations. Marlow is his dog, by the way. The one, the one thing private enterprise wants to see from governments is policy certainty, and that's, I think, the greatest failing uh, at a Commonwealth level over the last 15 or so years. He and other politicians of both major parties and all levels of government are working to provide some certainty for the Latrobe Valley, at least, by joining a task force. The, the intent of the Latrobe Valley Task Force is to bring all levels of government together with the community to outline a, a vision, a, a long-term plan for the future of the region, but then to take the next step and make it actionable. We just need to get stuff done. We need to get stuff done on the ground that makes a difference in people's lives. The Latrobe Valley's coal is of a low quality and isn't exported. It's thrown straight into the power stations and that's it. But competition with renewable energy and a transition to lower emissions power means no new power stations are planned and the ones that exist will at some point close. Look, I'm, I'm an optimist in terms of believing Latrobe Valley does have a great future, but I'm also a realist in the sense that I know we need to see local, state and federal government working cooperatively with the community to plan for that future and to make sure we don't leave it too late. For Latrobe Valley, I think it's the last six months that we can really start admitting that Things are changing, but then the question is, how do we become part of that change? This is Wendy Farmer. President of Voices of the Valley and Renewable Energy Advocate for Friends of the Earth. Are you optimistic about it? Do you think it's going to turn out all right or are you worried about it? I'm not worried at all about it, actually. I think the future for Latrobe Valley for Gippsland is bright. There are a lot of opportunities and we can create more opportunities. What we do need, though, and I think all coal communities do, is governments to actually admit that things are changing, that things can change quickly. The fact that they can't export any of their coal has forced the Latrobe Valley to face the future head on. There are opportunities in the transition away from fossil fuels. That's what they talk about when they meet in the Latrobe Valley. That's how you get all those people to the table. Australia's biggest battery is going to be built at Hazelwood. As much as Gippsland's a beautiful part of the world and every day is a good day to visit Gippsland, it can be a little bit breezy in Bass Strait. So there's opportunity to capitalise on that wind resource in Bass Strait as well and link that into the existing transmission infrastructure, which is already there. So there are some competitive advantages the Trade Valley will have going forward. There's also the, the workforce, the skilled workforce, a, a, a background in heavy industries. Some of these conversations about what happens next still involve coal. The pull to keep making money out of digging stuff out of the ground is strong. I, I've still got a a view that that resource, that brown coal resource, which exists in the Latrobe Valley, will be utilised in some shape or form in the years ahead. Now, whether it is around uh, hydrogen production or whether it's uh, alternate uses in terms of fertiliser or other productive uses. There's a trial scheme using brown coal to create liquid hydrogen for export to Japan. Latrobe Valley-born energy expert Scott Hamilton is worried that ideas like this that maintain the status quo are doing more harm than good. I think that that's 
really a it's giving false hope to the people of places like the um, Latrobe Valley and those communities because it's just not real. If it's left up to the free market, there's no doubt Australia will find a way to transition away from coal as the market for it dries up. The real sort of challenge is that these towns have these people employed by coal and power stations and they're very high paying jobs which brings a lot of important wealth and other jobs to these communities and there's no plan for the transition for those communities or those workers and that's what I'm really concerned about. The question is whether the new jobs and industries will be in coal communities. Will people in these communities be left behind? And this idea that that the market's going to fix it or think, no, that's just rubbish because we know that's not going to happen because the market doesn't care about these workers or the communities. So there is no plan and what's going to happen in this next 10 years is we're going to see the towns and communities like the Latrobe Valley, like the Hunter Valley, like Lithgow, like Gladstone, Wyala, and I can go on, be decimated as these power stations and industries close because they won't be suitable in a decarbonised future. Scott Hamilton and most of the other experts we talked to said without government intervention, the Hunter and other coal mining communities will not be taken care of by the free market. It will take a significant intervention from the government to make that happen. The federal government seems to know this. Today we're announcing $1.5 million as part of a partnership together with the Port of Newcastle to ensure that Hydrogen, a hydrogen hub here in particular, can be a great success. At the moment, most announcements are small, but creating energy is only half the story. In Newcastle, the big jobs boost came when they did something with the energy, creating a chain, coal mining, steel making, construction, manufacturing. Otherwise, we're just transitioning from a coal quarry to a sunlight and wind quarry. Hopefully, we will find some way of building a new chain. But there's one big question mark hanging over any plans for a post-coal economy. How long do we have to put these plans into action? Australia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Sam Dunn and Will Ockenden with research by Lexi Metherill. Our series producer is Jess O'Callaghan. Next. It wasn't long ago that Australian coal mining companies thought they had a long, long future selling coal to Japan. Uh, We hope to be running the operation in two to three hundred years' time. But we now know Japan's need for Aussie coal won't last anywhere near that long. In recent years, attention has turned to India. India is the new market Mm. in terms of both thermal and and steel-making coking coal. And Australian and Indian mining billionaires have spent a decade trying to get new mines going. Adani hopes to start production at the Carmichael coal mine by 2015. The story of why they've struggled and what that means for how long the coal export industry can last is next on Australia If You're Listening. 